Hey everyone, welcome to The Conversation. I'm your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. I am back today and I'm very excited uh, to talk with our first guest because as we all know, 2020 has been uh, a year full of discussing why we can't dismantle the prison industrial complex. Um, but it exists, it exists and it is not a compassionate place prison. Um, and to answer for that, uh, we have a filmmaker and the executive director of the Compassion Prison Project, Fritzi Horstman. Fritzi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Francesca. It's great to be here. Now, I said to answer the problem of compassion in prison, but that's not exactly what the Compassion Prison Project does. So why don't you just tell us what, what you all do? So our mission at the Compassion Prison Project is to bring um, communities and prisons compassion compassionate action and bring them bring compassion to the prisons right now that's our that's our focus right now uh compassion to the prisons but it's the compassion prison project is what i want to explain it's not the compassion prisoner project because mm. and in prisons what we're seeing is that everyone in prison is traumatized and the men and women that are living there come from um horrendous backgrounds, most of them, I believe if you get into prison, the way you get into prison is through trauma. And I really wanna explain something about what trauma does to the brain, body, and spirit. Um, there's a thing called adverse childhood experiences. It's an ACE quiz created by Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda from the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. Mm. And there are 10 questions and you can go to our website and take the ACE quiz. There are 10 questions and they range from domestic abuse, um, childhood, um, the childhood traumas of, um, gosh, I'm a little nervous, but um, adverse childhood experiences include physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, which is one of the worst things, physical and emotional neglect, uh, substance abuse or alcoholism, um, parents who have mental illness, parents who've been, parents or home, uh, people in the home who've gone to prison. Sure. Um, I have eight ACEs and, um, in the United States, 12% of the United States people have four, four or more ACEs in prison. It's 70 to 80%. Mm -hmm. And people who have six or more ACEs, it's 64% in the prisons. So the amount of trauma that the people come into prison with, and so we're talking often or very often, these tra traumatic events happen often or very often to the men and women who have suffered in childhood before they're 18. Right. And, when, and you have, when you have that much um, trauma, you're in a state of fight or flight for most of your life. And you can't get into your prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is where you you know, understand about consequences. You understand right from wrong. You understand that's where your moral center is. But when you're committing crimes, this isn't available to you. The prefrontal cortex isn't available to you. So what happens is you commit a crime and you're put in prison for the rest of your life, and you may not have even realized what happened to you because of the amount of stress that your body is on, under. Sure, sure, yes, and all of that, of course, is compounded by institutional racism and historic uh, inequity, and then you've got the prison system in and of itself, which, of course, re-traumatizes in all different ways. So what specifically and concretely do you do um, with incarcerated people? Well, before COVID, we were going in every three weeks, bringing them treats, sitting there for seven hours in circle, talking about their trauma, talking about what's going on in their lives. And then we th created a thing called the Giving Back Project, where they start building bridges back to their communities, 
giving them um, giving them agency and a sense of accomplishment. One of the guys is creating a STEM class for underserved youth in his community. Mm. Um, and there are examples of the, that all over the place. The other thing we're doing now is, is, is an initiative we have called Adopt a Prison. We're gonna do a pilot program in four different prisons, two on the West Coast, two on the East Coast. And the idea is to bring trauma-informed trauma-responsive care to all the men and women working and living in prison. And that means everyone knows what trauma is, everybody knows how it affects the brain, body, and spirit, and everybody knows that when someone is acting out, it's not because they're they're morally uh, corrupt or inept. It's not because they're bad people, it's because they're triggered. Mm -hmm. And this is on both sides of the bars. The men and women that are working there um, the life expectancy of a correctional officer in the United States is 59 years old. That presents as having six aces, six or more aces. Um, so, so the life expectancy of somebody who has six or more aces, now this is comorbidity. This is what we're seeing in our hospitals. Yeah. We're seeing people are traumatized. And when you live in that state of trauma, when you're in a high, hyper hypervigilant state, your body has no time to... Um, to build an immune system. Uh, toxic chemicals like cortisol um, um, and adrenaline flood your body when you're in a hypervigilant state. And so imagine being in a prison, working, walking, you know, walking in that door, you may not come out there by the end of the day. And sure. that's the same with the people living in prison. And the only way you can heal from trauma is if you're, in, if you're feeling safe. So if you're not feeling safe, how are you going to heal? And this it goes for a lot of the people in the United States, because remember, 64% of Americans have had one or more ACE. And so, and for me, I'm still recovering from my uh, traumatic childhood. Yeah, I was going to ask you, yes, about, you know, how you got into this work, but also just the work feels at such odds with the way that our prison system treats incarcerated people. Um, just institutionally in terms of treating them like they are animals or like they are dangerous or like, you know, I mean, all kinds of combined and, and just violently treating them. So how do you address, how do you address that and sort of counter that from within the system? Uh, such great question. The first thing I want to point out is that the three biggest mental health facilities in the United States are the LA County Jail, Cook County Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island. Wow. So those are our mental health facilities. And instead of them, instead of treating them with uh, with care and de-escalating the situation, they're the people in corrections are trained to go to war every day. They are trained to face the enemy. Um, I've been I was told when I was being um, reprimanded for some of the things I've done because I like to be nice to people in prison. I was told that we're on one side of the line and I don't believe there is a side of the line because I believe that we're all in this together. And the health of a correctional officer is just as important as the health of an incarcerated man or woman. And if we want a safe society, we have to really focus on bringing mental health to everyone working and living in prison. I mean, that's what's up right now because the people that are coming back to us are not in, in, they're in worse shape than when they arrived. They're being traumatized and re-traumatized. They're not getting the help they need, the mental health. So it's 75 to 80% of the men and women in prison have mental health issues. That's depression, that's anxiety, that's schizophrenia, et cetera. And so 
it's a mental health crisis. This is not, a, and as I explained earlier, this isn't a moral, a, a question of morality anymore. This is a question of how, and this is systemic. You know, Gandhi right. said violence is the uh, poverty is the worst form of violence. Poverty is violence. When we don't, we're a rich nation and we can take care of everybody. But yeah. we have, you know, we have grain growing fallow farmers being subsidized to not give food to people. So it, it's like, I just, I wanted to, before we, we, you know, close the interview, I want to just show because there is a documentary that you've been working on. You yourself are a filmmaker and, um, uh, the Compassion Project has been captured by the uh, forthcoming documentary called Step Inside the Circle, and I wanted to just show a clip of that. Awesome, thank you. If you often felt that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special, step inside the circle. If your family lived in extreme poverty, step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. There is no shame. There is no shame. There is no shame. That is a clip from Step Inside the Circle, um, which captures the Compassion Prison Project. Um, Fritzy, what, just finally, what drew you to this work? I, I, you sort of touched on it, but I wanted to ask, like, why, why this work for you? You're a filmmaker, and now this. Um, five years ago, I started writing a musical about prisons, and I don't understand why, but it's been, People underserved, the most vulnerable population has always fascinated me. And I could never understand, even when I was a little girl, why we have homeless people or, um, you know, women working on the street, sleeping with men. It just, it made no sense to me. So I've always had this sense that something terrible, terrible is wrong. And I've always been waiting for someone to, you know, do something about it. And, and no one has. So I walked into a prison in 2018, I said, when are we coming back? And they said, six months. And I'm like, this schedule's, this, this is not the good schedule. Mm. I said, we got I got to do something. And um, I walked in there January 5th, 2019. And this is what we've done in, in about two years. So wow. within the next year, we're going to, half the prisons in the United States are going to be trauma-informed and trauma-responsive. And in, in three years, we're going to have, they're all going to be healing centers and our society is going to shift. And uh, let's talk, let's keep talking about it. And I will give you progress reports because it's on. <laughs> I, I so hope so, Fritzy. Fritzy Horstman, uh, filmmaker, executive director of the Compassion Prison Project, actually enacting rehabilitation and um, almost a sort of defund the violent police state within it, within it, because it can be changed radically. Thank you so much for joining us, Fritzy, and, and thanks for your work. Thank you so much. It's been great. Let's do it always. <laughs> Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm still Francesca Fiorentini. Thanks for being here. And my next guest uh, has just written a book that I think will interest a lot of you. Uh, it is called, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? 
uh, music to my ears. Um, please welcome author and speaker and communication consultant, Tom Bowman. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell, just tell me why you decided to write this book, which The Guardian said it's one of 30 books to help us understand the world in 2020, which like I need all 30 of those books <laughs> yeah, now. We all do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I decided to write this because I've been working on public engagement with the climate issue for about 15, 20 years. And throughout that time, it all started with science communication, basically explaining what climate change is to the public. And what's become obvious over all of this time is that those messages are valuable, but they're insufficient. Mm -hmm. And as, as scientists have sort of dominated the communication landscape, what's happened is that is that we've been taught that climate change is this complicated sort of Gordian knot of global systems that all interact with each other. So if you want to solve food, pretty soon you're dealing with transportation and urban infrastructure and energy generation. And it becomes so overwhelming that we all feel small and, and kind of useless, right? Yeah. At the same time that emissions are rising, there's another there's another trend, which is the drop in prices for renewable energy, the availability of new technologies that are affordable, like electric transportation. Um, I decarbonized my own design business that I used to own and discovered how easy it is to squeeze waste out of the system without actually harming, you know, influencing anybody's lifestyle in a meaningful way. And it and it tells a story that there's a lot of productive work going on that we can be hopeful about and that we can actually participate in if we recast just the way we think about what climate change is. Mm. And and so rather than a sort of um, difficult to understand world systems, um, it, you know, economic markets inter interfacing mm -hmm. with, yes, food prices and oil prices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and very scientific on top of that in terms of how many degrees to keep us to. Right. What, what is your answer? Is it, what is the sort of, how is it simple for everyday folks and even politicians? Well, if we, if we set that assumption that climate change is this incredibly complicated problem aside for a moment, mm -hmm. what do we see? It almost all boils down to one thing. We burn too much coal, oil, and natural gas right? The solution is just to stop burning coal, oil, and natural gas. It doesn't mean that we have to change what we do. It means we just change how we do it. Yeah. And, and when you set that as your singular, simple focus, it means that everything we do is amenable to a reduction in emissions. Everything every business does, every church does, every organization does. Now, my own emissions might be small, but in aggregate, they're huge with, mm -hmm. with everyone else. And, and part of the, the problem we have in climate communication is that we've always focused on little things that we want individuals to do. Yes. So at the end of Al Gore's terrific movie, the credits roll and it says, please change one light bulb. And you the think, worst part of that movie. That was <laughs> it, was, it was so out of scale with the problem. But the reality is lots of people are doing lots of things. We just don't talk about it. We don't cover it. We don't bring it forward. And so we haven't created a shared culture that says we are working on climate action together. And mm -hmm. if, we, if we do that, all of a sudden we discover how much energy and creativity and, and initiative there actually is in our midst.
Now, let me just ask you, because, you know, um, obviously, I think uh, we all revere Bill McKibben. Um, and I know you've interfaced with him and he basically says we have to, if we're going to rein in um, the climate crisis, we have to take on the fossil fuel industry directly, not just sort of skirt around them and go to renewables because they are going to squeeze every last drop of oil off this planet as they possibly can. What is your response to that? My response was that it takes a village of approaches. Mm. And, and my main interest has always been to shift the culture underneath the climate issue so that there's a possibility of agreement, you know, that sep- that breaks down this ridiculous divide between deniers and, and scientists, between the left and right, between the oil companies and their influence and the rest of us who feel powerless. Yes, we need to take on the fossil fuel industry, but the question is, can you do that and can I do that? Or can we be part of solutions that support the taking on of the climate systems uh, or the uh, the oil fossil fuel companies so that we vote for candidates who will do the right thing rather than letting climate be sort of a low level interest that never influences the way we vote. Sure. Yes. And we're definitely seeing that now with Ed Markey's reelection and the Sunrise Movement and the way they turned out for right. him. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the question for me is, I think the answer that I'm getting from you is essentially renewables, that that yes, capitalism and that the way that we overconsume and drive and fly is a problem and eat meat, et cetera. But if we can put renewables as an, a replacement, um, we can wean ourselves off those other things, but renewables is really where it's at. My question is, is it gonna, is it gonna succeed if it doesn't make someone money? You know, this is the thing. It's like, if it doesn't make anyone rich, Americans, especially corporations, are so slow to get on board. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of prongs to this. One is that we start where we are. Right. And so and so whether cap how capitalism is going to evolve, how technology and oper- economic opportunity are going to evolve is based around innovation that none of us can really predict. Mm-hmm. Who thought I mean, if Tesla hadn't come along, an electric car would be a golf cart that no one would want. And yet they made it so attractive that everybody wants one now, right? So so we can all reduce our consumption of energy. It's it's really surprisingly easy to do. Uh, we can vote for candidates. We can spur the market towards greener products. And this creates all kinds of economic opportunity for entrepreneurs who are who are creating new businesses to sort of create a new model. You know, even in COVID, where we're all locked away at home, mm-hmm. we're watching a tremendous revolution in the way people work, right? Yeah. And and that's creating new businesses, new, new opportunities for business that were not even conceivable as little as a year ago. And so this means that that if we if we start pushing ourselves in, and to show sort of leadership among ourselves and with our friends and family and coworkers and and so forth, it helps drive innovation and creates opportunities that have yet to be realized. Sure. And that's that is an enormous amount of economic opportunity. We're up against the powers that be. Don't get me wrong. You know, <laughs> they're still powerful and they're still there. Tesla's still a seventy thousand dollar car. It's a $70,000 car that or, costs as much to own as a Corolla because gasoline costs so much more than electricity and there's no maintenance on an electric car. Yeah. 
So that's so yeah, this huge sticker price scares people off. But the studies of cost of ownership show that it's actually not a bad thing to have, and it, by comparison, so we're in the we're in a phase of adjustment. There's no question. Right. Well, let me ask you about the Biden administration and your hopes for what he will do in the first, you know, year, yeah. even hundred days. Um, John Kerry's been appointed as, I guess, climate czar or something. Um, yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on where he's going to go? Well, I think that the appointment of John Kerry was a stroke of genius. He's a he's a cabinet member, a climate envoy who sits on the National Security Council, and he's highly respected for having negotiated the Paris Agreement. That that in and of itself does an enormous amount. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Senate remains in Republican hands, it means that Biden is mostly going to work through executive action, just like Obama did. But there are things, other things that can be done. You can you can regulate. Uh, with the SEC, you can demand that corporations file every disclose their climate risks every year, and that means that the marketplace will value those companies differently. Oof, and that's yeah. huge, right? Yes. There's also something called the Action for Climate Empowerment Agenda uh, as part of the Paris Agreement, and it calls for every country to develop a national strategy to engage its public in participating in finding solutions to the climate crisis. And I've been involved with a, with a project with about 150 other people to develop a framework for creating a national strategy. No major emitting company, uh, country has yet submitted one to the UN climate process. Right. <laughs> if the Biden administration were to say, we're going to lead on that and engage yeah. America's really diverse climate and climate justice leaders in forming a national strategy for public engagement, that would be an enormous step forward. And you wouldn't have to rely on Congress to do it. Yeah. Finally, how do we fight against fatalism when it comes to climate change? I think a key part of it is to talk about what we want. I want cleaner air. I imagine you do too. I want more, uh, more humane relationships with people of other races who don't look like me. I want a neighborhood that feels safer, right? Uh, I want to live longer. I don't want uh, African-Americans and other people of color to suffer asthma much, at much higher rates than I do. If we start talking about creating the society we've always wanted to have, that's very different than just saying, be afraid and try not to do the things that are so destructive. That is absolutely right. Uh, It's not just about the polar bears, although they are cute. Ferocious, very cute. Um, But yes, it is about healthy communities and here in California, not having it, you know, rain ash every three months. Exactly. The air quality has been terrible here in California. Tom Bowman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Tom's book is What If Solving the Climate Crisis Is Simple? Get it, understand 2020 and the fight ahead of us. I love this. We need to be more positive, and I think we are turning that corner right now. And, you know, save for a Tesla or whatever. (laughs) There you go. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. Thank you. My pleasure.